0: Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Right, so today, this is uh, Trish's idea by the way, Um, we're starting a new kind of mini-series about just telling the stories of... Uh, people that will encourage us, uh, and we kind of split it up by, I guess, disciplines or devotional uses. So I think one is going to be the Bible, which I'm talking about today. Uh, one's going to be prayer, and one's going to be sort of mission orientated. And then when I started getting into it, I thought actually, rather than telling the story of somebody about the Bible in terms of I could have picked one of my great heroes, Brother Andrew, God smuggler to ch- uh, you know God smuggler of the Bible. Uh, And I used to work for the organisation that he set up, Uh, so that'd be quite cool, uh, because there's so many fantastic stories together. I actually thought I'd tell the story of the Bible. Not the stories in the Bible, but the stories of the Bible, how we get this thing in our hands today. Um, And so, first of all, I need to to plug this book. Uh, Nick Page is a fantastic writer, he's really, really funny. Um, but also he's a brilliant, brilliant historian, and this is a really kind of potted history of the Bible, which I've kind of pretty much stole all of his content uh, for today. Um, And it also points you towards more sort of vigorous and and, and dense works as well, more more history of the Christian faith. But it's a really, really interesting read if you've ever got the time to sort of plough through that. So I'm going to talk about The story of the Bible. And remarkably, or unremarkably, as we might assume, the story of the Bible kind of mirrors the story in the Bible, which is really weird. And so, just so that we're not fuzzy or we're not mixed up, when I talk about the Bible, this is the word about the Word of God. This is the Word of God with a little w, if you will. Okay? Uh, We consider it inspired um, so, but there's a whole uh, gamut of things that we could mean by inspired. You get the very, very liberal who are kind of, yeah, it's kind of just people writing things down about God. And then you get the very, very fundamentalist where it's like literally God sat these guys down in a room and dictated it to them. I suggest that both ends of the spectrum are a little bit almost falling off. Because if you get to the very fundamentalist, this was dictated, you can't, actually what you want to read is the Koran because that's what it's supposed to have been dictated. Um, So I'm not going to argue or throw out anything controversial about what the Bible is or isn't. But I would suggest this, that this is a radical book. This is a dangerous book. This book has literally changed history. The physical book from people reading the content. And as you can see from my timeline... The blue bits are just notes about history. What happened, how the Bible got here, physical things that just occurred. Whereas the red bits are to do with persecution. So things happen, and the Bible gets produced somehow, and then persecution happens. As, and you might have seen me post this on Facebook as I was thinking about it, as a white male European I am in the top 1% in this world. The top 1% in terms of economics and the top 1% in terms of privilege. I earn more than $2 a day. So that automatically puts me in the top 1% of the wealthiest people on this planet. Mm. In this room, we could be more into the the 0.0001% or we could be more near the 0.99% in terms of wealth. So by white European standards, and I say white deliberately, um, by white European standards, you know, we may feel poorer or richer according to what's around us, but in the world today, I would be in the top 1%. I say white because white tends to subjugate in history. So white Europeans, if you think about the conquests of South America, if you think about the conquests of America... The conquests of Africa wiped. I say male because males tend to subjugate. Okay, and I say European because generally that's where the drivers of some sort of evolution of society has come from. So you think of how, you know, America, South America and all these things. So, I love the Bible. But when I read this book... I should approach it with some sense of trepidation. Because as somebody in the top 1%, this book has some very, very hard things for me to read. But the problem is I've become so familiar with it that they no longer become difficult things to read. What do I do when I have a roof over my head, I have literally a hospital about a mile away from my house, I have running water, I have electricity, I have a car, I have a steady income. I have a pension. What do I do when Jesus says something like, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to live? What do I do when Jesus says something like, go and sell all of your possessions and give your money to the poor? What do I do when Paul writes about love giving itself? sharing its wealth what do I do with the book of Acts when it says and they had all things in common challenging but somehow we've nullified that and what we have made the Bible say is that some people are in and some people are out we've said that the kingdom of God isn't for all even though Jesus, it says Jesus is for, so God so loved the world So instead of glibly approaching the Bible, I should probably pause, take a deep breath and ask myself, do I really want to engage with this text? So there's a somber starter for 10. (laughs) So today, I am going to talk about the history of this physical book because I think the history of the Bible is fascinating and compelling and beautiful, okay? And my aim is to get us to shift from that kind of Sunday school, unreading, reading reading of the Bible. Eugene Peterson in his book, Eat This Book, it's called, talks about his little nephew, who was about three. After he got confirmed, he got given a Bible, and he sat there on a park bench, reading it. But obviously he couldn't read it, so his nana said to him, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm reading the Bible. And it's a powerful image of how we approach it. He couldn't read it, but he said he was reading it. He was flicking the pages and glancing over the words, but not reading it. And so what I want us to shift us from is is that kind of blind, just kind of, I know this story, I know this story, I'm familiar with this story, I know the story of the Good Samaritan, I know the story of the Prodigal Son and actually let it pop off the page and explode and just hit it right in the face for all of the dynamic and subversive text that it really is. This book has changed the world. It literally has changed the world, as you will come and see. And what I want us to move from is that kind of really staid and steady, nice, it's a lovely book. This is a conformist book. This is a book that tells me to step into line. You know, oftentimes church is so um, associated with being the conformity, living by rules doing what we're told we're the nice people in society we're the um, really kind of vanilla guys in the middle of the road You know, like we're not uh, radical in any way but I suggest that uh, there's a brilliant quote in uh, Nick Page's book where it says what can start in a bible study can end in revolution mm-hmm. and that's not just a trite saying it literally has ended in revolution when somebody starts reading the bible as we'll see and it ends in revolution. Um, where is it? Oh, yeah. Martin Luther, who is going to become really, really important. This is the guy that started off the Reformation. So, our evangelical faith, pretty much the faith in this country, whether we be Anglican or Pentecostal or Charismatic, largely is built on building blocks that Martin Luther laid in the 1500s. Okay, and I'm going to read a quote from him. He's not a great guy, by the way. It might sound like he's awesome, but um, Nazis have drawn some of his teachings to (laughs) to develop its ideas, so just to throw that out there. Right, I'm going to read a quote by him, and I want you guys to turn in your physical Bibles, if you can read it, oh, that's an interlinear as well, uh, to John 5. Martin Luther says this about the Bible. There are some who have little regard for the Old Testament. They think of it as a book that was given to the Jewish people only. And is now out of date, containing only stories of past times. Which is sometimes how we treat the New Testament as well. You know, it's a book given to some guys early on. It's a bit out of date, a bit funky. Let's, let's, you know, do something new. Let, let's, let's rethink the message. Let's rethink the context. But Christ says in John 5, so this is at the end of John 5, it's Verse 46. Search the Scriptures, for it is they that bear witness to me. The Scriptures of the Old Testament are not to be despised, but diligently read. Therefore, dismiss your own opinions, feelings, and think of the Scripture as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds which which can never be sufficiently explored, in order that you may find that divine wisdom which God here lays before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. Here you will find the swaddling cloths and the manger in which Christ lies. Simple and lowly are these swaddling cloths, but dear is the treasure that lies within them. So he's talking about the Old Testament, how we can discover Jesus in the Old Testament. There's a brilliant line in it which says, put off your own opinions. So often we come to the Bible with our own agenda. And we look to it to say the things that we want it to say. Famously, King James, so there's a King James version here. He removed the word tyrant from the Bible because King James believed in the divine authority of kings. So Pharaoh, the, the really rubbish kings of Israel, they could not be called tyrants. Jesus could not talk about tyrants in Mark 10 as in how worldly rulers rule over each other. He, had to, he removed the word tyrant because if you believe in the divine right for kings, you cannot question the king whether they are good or bad. So he removed the word tyrant. He also changed the, the, the name Jacob to James, which is why we've got the book of James in the New Testament. That dude was called Jacob. The name James didn't come along for another six or 700 years. <coughs> so the idea is remove your preconceived ideas and and the thing is like we think well you know the catholic church did that and we'll come on to like the words things like penance charity church these words started wars the translation of these words started mass persecutions <laughs> persecutions but in our, in our charismatic faith, in our Pentecostal faith, in our Bible-believing, promise believing faith, we do the same thing. Don't we come to the Bible, remove verses out of context, and say, this is for me? A brilliant one. Jeremiah 29, was it Jeremiah 29, 11? Mm-hmm. For I know the plans I have for you to build a prosperous future. Whatever. You know that was spoken to a people, not an individual, a people group in exile. And the promise was to bring them back from exile. The promise is fulfilled in Christ because we are on a new exile. We're we're in a new exile and we're on a new exodus. And it's not a tangible, um, quantifiable thing in terms of wealth. It's nothing to do with accumulating wealth or things or stuff or fame. It's about being brought into the kingdom. And being brought into the kingdom is never about what you accumulate. It's about what you give away. And so we appropriate the Bible to fulfill what we want to believe. But instead, I dare you, I double dare you, to read this book with the lenses off. And then go find out about things. Use Wikipedia if you have to. What is it about Samaritans? Why did Jesus bother going to the woman in Tyre? Why does he call her a Canaanite? A term that, by the time of Jesus, hasn't been used in 500 years. Why? And I'm not even going to answer that question. I'm going to let you go find out about it. And what I'm driving at is this beautiful idea that the, the, the Jewish rabbis have of haga. Say that with me, haga. haga. It feels like you're clearing your throat, doesn't <laughs> it? Um, and, and it's this word meditate so you'll find it in the Bible and it, um, so in the Psalms especially you, you'll see this word hagar, and it's translated as meditate but really it's, uh, it's almost like one of those onomatopoeic words and it's literally the sound of, 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 a, of a predatory animal chewing over its prey you know so I don't know if you've got dogs has anybody got dogs here? I remember the Jenkins dog Milo big dumb thing it was but when you used to give it like a bone or a chew toy, you could hear it go. That sound of, of ruminating, of chewing over. Come to the Bible and mull it over. Chew it over. Don't just fly through it. I mean, I'm, I'm the worst for this. Like, <laughs> just kind of blitzing through texts. You know, I read like all the time. And so oftentimes I just rattle through things without letting them settle or challenge me. Take time, remove the lenses. Read it for what it says, not what you want it to say. You know. So uh, another classic example is Hebrews eleven. Why we like this hall of faith? Look at these guys. Abraham. Yeah, he believed. He was like really old, and he still had a kid. And, and his wife, she was really old, and they had a kid. And let's just gloss over the end where it talks about people getting sawn in half and killed, but they had faith. How could they have had faith if they got burnt to death? Surely faith would have delivered them. But faith is the fidelity that saw them bear that for the kingdom. And so when it says others, that word others in about Hebrew 11.23 is a challenge. And then kind of we just switch off after that. Because they're not the great and glorious faith-filled generals of, of our history. These are the losers. These are the people that died. They're not supposed to die. They're supposed to live and have a glorious testimony. Think of it as if your mind is a balloon. And that when you come to the Word, that that's inflating you. Until it's so inflated, until your thinking and rumination about the Bible is so inflated, that the skin of the balloon is this thin. So there's no difference between the thoughts you think about the Bible and the way it expresses itself in the world. That It's only skin in between. So all of a sudden you're so full of the meditations on the Word of God that it's just how you live. There's this wonderful story in China. Uh, One of my great heroes, a guy called Ron Boyd McMillan, he used to be a Reuters journalist, but he was also a guy that smuggled Bibles into North Korea. He met with all the great leaders of the Chinese house church before they all started passing on. And he was visiting China in the early 80s and interviewing an evangelist. And at that time they didn't have Bibles. And so, what this evangelist would do, he'd go into a village and share the gospel, and they'd all get saved gloriously. And and he knew that he'd have to go off and travel and visit other congregations, if you will, other villages. So, how did this fledgling church survive until he came back under the persecution of communism? And what he'd do is choose just five random people, and he'd give them each a stone. This is where the idea came from for the memorials. And he'd just write one verse of scripture on the stone. And he'd leave that with five individuals, and he'd say, every week, take it in turns, think about this verse, and then share what you're thinking. And then when you've done it, pass it on to somebody else. And he'd come back, and the congregations were still there. But then, in the early 2000s, when Bibles had flooded China, as a result of something that happened in 1981, by the way, um, he came back to this evangelist and said, he's still giving them stones when they could have Bibles. And this was really ticking off the powers that be in the charity because like, man, we went to all this effort to get Bibles into the country and you're still using stones. And he said this, I've discovered that it is dangerous to learn truth faster than we can live it. And that's where it all comes down to. How we live what we read. And you'll find that these red lines, these are people that lived what they read. This is a remarkably common book. I did ask the question, but I think it got buried on the messenger board. But I, I have about 20 to 30 Bibles at home. I have uh, <laughs> Jewish translations. I have Greek interlinear, Hebrew interlinear. I have... Multitude of, of, of different translations. I have youth Bibles, we have women's Bibles, we have youth women's Bibles, we have y- Bibles for young people that are women. I don't know. We just have tons and tons of Bibles. It's so common. It's the biggest selling book in the history of the world. Okay? Every, every, you know, when you read the best top sellers list, the Bible's always number one, so they don't even bother writing it on the list anymore. This is so common that we've lost its value. This is a remarkably uncommon book. Gandhi had this to say about it. You Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all of civilization to pieces, and yet you just treat it like a piece of literature. And this is a man who wasn't even a Christian that took principles from the Bible and changed the continent of India. Unfortunately, the Bible has been used to validate powers. This, this book is so subversive. Okay, We think of it as a divine PR communication. Our God is great. Our God is awesome. He was so high and lifted up. He is the one high God. And that is true. But do you realise that this God that we worship is so different to all the other gods ever proposed throughout all of history? He is counter-cultural. He is so subversive. So even in the creation stories, anybody been to the British Museum in London? If you've been to the, the Middle East, the, the Ancient Near East section, if you wander around the Ancient Near East section, you'll see all the different cultures that were springing up around the time of the writing of the Bible. And so the Babylonian creation myth, all of these cultures all have their own creation myth. Ours is called Genesis. And in the Babylonian creation myth, they have this, 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 this um, younger God called Marduk. And there's this ruling God called Tiamat. She's a woman. And Marduk decides to throw off the shackles of Tiamat. And bear in mind that she's a woman, okay? This is really important. And so Marduk eventually defeats Tiamat in a battle and cuts her in half. And she's a mighty dragon, okay? So this imagery, by the way, comes back in books like Job. So when you talk about Leviathan and stuff, it's talking about the culture at the time. And so he kills this Leviathan, Tiamat, cuts her in half. And from her innards, he scatters the stars into the sky. And from the carcass of the body, he creates the earth, and so what you have in that culture, and what you have in most cultures, is that the creation of all things comes out of violence yeah. and subjugation of women. So when you have Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, but he hovered over it. He spoke, let there be light. And even in those two verses, there's no chaos, there's order. There's no violence, there's just speaking. There's no subjugation of women, but you have a God that reverses to himself in the Divine Feminine. From verse 1, 1, it is subversive. You don't have a God who tries to show his prowess by how he conquers his enemy. You have a God that allows Abraham to say, wait a minute God, you're not surely going to do that. You have a God who is present and able to be dialogued with. There's this brilliant bit when uh, Elijah confronts the priests of Baal, and he's taunting them. And he says to them, literally, he says, where is Baal? Is he in the toilet? Because he's not here. And then Elijah kind of saunters along down, pours his water over his sacrifice, and then gets (coughs) licked off in flames. We have a God who is always present with his people. And the remarkable thing is, God doesn't choose the powerful. He didn't become the God of Babylon, or Alexander the Great, or Rome. He became the God of a small, insignificant people, started by a nomad with no fixed abode, Abraham. His people get subjugated by other nations. He picks the losers of history. He picks the younger sons, the barren women, to tell his story. He has a people that are so often going off the tracks. How is this displaying the glory of God? God, you've picked the losers. We are nothing compared to the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire or the Syrian Empire or the Babylonian Empire. We are the losers. We're always on the losing side. And the book culminates with Jesus Christ, the one who was born in the stable and the witnesses he chose, he chose. The foreigners, the women, the poor, the rogues. To testify. When he gets risen again, who's the first person that sees him? A woman. In the culture of the day, that's unheard of. Women didn't even have voting rights. And when we come on to the suffragette movement, the Bible is also instrumental in that. It's a subversive book because it always challenges power as we think of it. It always challenges wealth. It's written in subversive language. You know when we say... um, Jesus is Lord and Saviour. You know what Caesar was called at that time? Lord and Saviour. So when Paul writes about Jesus being the Lord and Saviour, it's politically subversive. He is taking the mickey out of Caesar. It is satire at its absolute best. When we talk about the peace of Jesus Christ, Pax Christi, Again, they used to talk about the peace of Rome when Rome conquered an area. They're saying, now the Pax Romana has arrived because of your Lord and Saviour. On the edge of a sword, by subjugating people, by dominating people with sheer violence. And Jesus comes and hangs on their cross and subverts all expectations. It's a wonderfully subversive book. And that is the story of the Bible. The Bible has been used to enforce power. Nazism. Use the Bible. On their belt buckles of the soldiers, it said, God with us. The Crusades, God wills it. And yet it always comes back to push them back. Nazism was undone, in part, by the church. Not all of the church, mind you, but some of the church standing up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, some of these great theologians of our recent times stood up and were killed. Karl Barth, not so much, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung in prison 12 days before Nazi Germany was conquered. Apartheid was validated by scripture. Why? Really tenuous exegesis. This is why bad exegesis is a terrible thing. God is the God who separates. He separated... The waters to bring forth the earth. He separated all these things. So, of course, we need to separate the peoples. And, of course, the white Europeans come out on top, right? But apartheid was undone by the Bible. In the most beautiful way, everybody in the world was waiting for South Africa to blow up in a civil war. And yet guys like Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, they managed to lead the greatest, most radical peace and reconciliation movement And it is a remarkable story, and that is because it's straight from the Bible. Slavery was validated by the Bible. Abraham had slaves. There's slaves in the New Testament. They don't say, get rid of your slaves. They say, slaves, be obedient to your masters. And yet amazing people read the Bible and said, no, no. There is no slave and free any longer. And by the way, that verse in Galatians is one of the most potent verses in Scripture, which you'll come and see as well. It's a radical book. So, let's work through it. Jesus was born about 4 BC. Okay, so we've even got our calendars wrong, by the way. But that was probably about the time. Uh, you can date that by when Herod the Great was in power, because he died in 4 BC. And yet he's talked about in relation to Jesus' birth. So, Jesus couldn't be born in naught, could he? Um, forty-eight, that's when the New Testament writing began. Before that, it was oral testimony. And before we get all, like, condescending and like, man, that's just really backwards... They were brilliant at remembering things. You could walk up to uh, pretty much any regular Jewish man at that time, and they'd pretty much be able to quote you chapter and verse. Well, they didn't have chapters or verses for them. Of the Old Testament. They knew it in their heads. They could memorise things. So Paul starts writing Galatians, earliest, or maybe like Thessalonians, one or the two. That's when the New Testament writing starts. Now this is really key. AD 67, in the midst of writing the New Testament, Nero comes along. The great persecutions of Nero, this Megalomania. absolutely insane. Uh, Rome broke down and they think Nero kind of did it himself. Um, so he needed a scapegoat, so he blamed the Christians, who are this kind of weird little fringe of society sect that nobody really knew and nobody really liked And so he blamed it on them, and then the great persecutions came. And and what happened with Nero was that he would take Christians, put them on poles, set them on fire, and have garden parties, and these were his lights. That is the backdrop to the writing of the New Testament. So when you think about language like the Caesar being Lord and Saviour, but somebody writing, no, 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 Jesus is Lord and Saviour. We're not just talking about cute satire. We're talking about this satire will get you killed. And it did. Paul was killed. Peter was killed. James was killed. They were all killed. That is the backdrop to thing. The Psalms. So bearing in mind, this is the Old Testament. Some of the Psalms are written 600 BC. Only in 70 AD was it decided which Psalms would be included (laughs) scriptures and that's in the Old Testament that's from the Jews that's not the Christians yet we haven't even even begun to start thinking about what's going to be scriptural (coughs) one of my favourite things codices the Bible and Christians as a whole we're by and large responsible for the book before 200 AD 98% of any literature was on scrolls Okay, but scrolls are not very portable in synagogues, for example, they keep them in cupboards. And that's how they bring them out. Even today, in synagogues, they keep them in cupboards. But Christians started using this thing called codices, which is basically, they'd have parchment or vellum, which is animal skin scraped, and they'd make notes. And then they'd stick them together. And this was, this was the way of common people. This would be how you record transactions and trade and your shopping list and your bills or your, uh, what you're owed This is the usage of common people. And this gets really important. Important things. Classic literature was kept on scrolls. The Christians started writing things on just common scraps. (laughs) 170. The Jewish writings became canonized in terms of they said these were our writings and everything outside of this is no longer considered authoritative it could be supplemental but it's no longer authoritative so the the books of the old testament that's when they kind of got decided completely different orders to what we have but that's when they kind of got decided 200 the mishnah so that's the the oral torah that's the notes so uh part of what the Shemash is it's the notes of the rabbis the sages over the ages of what they thought it was saying that's when that gets all put together and then 230, the Hexapla by Oregion. What a great word, Hexapla. Hexapla simply means an interlinear. Six different translations. So it had the Latin Vulgate, it had the Septuagint, it had the, the Hebrew. And Eregion and was a genius, one of the great theologians of the early church. And he wrote this massive document. Can you imagine six columns, different translations, how much work that would be? But he put this all together so that they could read the Old Testament and compare it in different languages and try and, eke out the nuances and what it's trying to say. So, a tremendous effort, a tremendous work. 300, one of the oldest copies, one of the earliest manuscripts we have for the Bible is the Codex Vaticanus. And that's kept in the Vatican Library, but this is one of the oldest documents that we have as the New Testament. 303, the Diocletian persecutions. This is the great persecution. This is where Christians were almost wiped off the face of the planet. This is where you have people being thrown to wild beasts. This is where you have um, half of the Jesus Freaks book coming from this period of time in terms of all of the just hundreds, thousands of martyrs. Around this time, you'd have uh, soldiers going door to door and, and, and searching houses for copies of the scriptures. And some people would just voluntarily give up whatever copies they have. Uh, Little snippets here and there, bits of letters, bits of um, Christian writings. And then some would die. They would choose to die, than give up their copies of the Bible. And then later on, we'd have this thing called the Donatists. I don't know if you know your church. The Donatists um, said that people who who, uh, recounted their faith or gave up their scriptures shouldn't be allowed back in the church. Um, So that's part of the Donatist movement. So that's kind of like an aloof, hey, we didn't cave. Uh, You guys shouldn't be in because you gave it up. That's where this came from. But people would die for their scriptures. But this is a really important thing. Right after the Diocletian persecution, what's called the Great Persecution, comes Constantine. And this is where everything changes for Christianity. Constantine was the Roman Empire, and he believed before a great battle that he'd actually see the empire come into his hands. He believed he saw a sign um, of the cross in the sky. Uh, and he swears blind that you know, all of his troops saw this as well, but not one of them thought to write it down. So he sees a sign, and he, and he hears God say to him audibly, In this sign, go and conquer. So Constantine, as an emperor he feels that he's been endorsed by the God of the Christians. So he goes and wins this battle. And then he decides to make the entire empire Christian. So Christianity has gone from being those on the underside of power, those on the underside of the boot of power, on the fringes, pushed out, persecuted because of their beliefs. And then all of a sudden it becomes the state-sponsored religion. And this is a massive shift because all of a sudden, this book, which is all about those on the side of power, all about those on the fringes of power, all about the losers, the ones that get crushed by Pharaoh, the ones that need to be rescued by God, all of a sudden they're in the pocket of Pharaoh. All of a sudden they are sponsored by Pharaoh. And then all of a sudden you have to do funny things to the text. You have to interpret it slightly differently to validate the power system that is endorsing you that's funny you you're now on the payroll of the caesar and all sorts of funny things happen to scripture after that codex, Sinait- codex sinaiticus a, th- a quarter of that is in the library at the british mu- at the british library you can see it now they reckon it was written about 330 so it's actually physically we have it there <coughs> eusebius now what does eusebius do the first Bible producer. The Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Jews kept it on scrolls, and each synagogue would have a set of scrolls. It wasn't portable, it wasn't for everybody, it was there. It was in a set place, it was in a fixed place, and only certain people could read it. Eusebius gets commissioned by Constantine to produce Bibles because Constantine decided he was going to build 50 churches. In Constantinople which was humbly named after himself um, and so Eusebius becomes the first Bible producer note that we still haven't decided what constitutes the Bible but he produces 50 and Eusebius is a brilliant brilliant man um, so he published these Bibles for Constantine and, he, and, and that's like a, a great work in itself 382 as a result of Athanasius a great, another great uh, theologian in the early church uh, he sent out his Christmas letter, which kind of listed a book, like books that should be considered scriptural and some that are a bit... Yeah, the, the the Shepherd of Hamas. Yeah, probably not so much in the New Testament. Maybe we'll just leave that one on the side. Um, and that's when they tried, kind of decided what was supposed to be in the New Testament. You notice how unfussy they are about what's considered to be in or out. What was really potent was how you lived. They don't get dogmatic about... Yes, yeah, some people read the, the, the works of one Clement. Some people don't. You know what? Revelation probably would never have made it. Because that was always a book... Even now, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, I, I think in the Anglican Church as well, they don't read from the book of Revelation in the lectionary. Because it's still considered a little bit... All. So nearly 400 years after Jesus... They've kind of decided what might be in there about him. <coughs> Priscilian, the, the Bishop of Avila, he, um, he read the Bible. And he decided that the Bible encouraged virtues of humility, of self-discipline, um, of kind of eschewing earthly wealth and honour. Uh, So what they did was they fabricated charges of heresy against him and had him killed. Because now you are on the payroll of the empire and you start to get these bishops that are very wealthy and doing very well from the system. (laughs) You can't have a guy saying, wait a minute, this sort of living isn't how Paul the Apostle spoke about. This isn't what Jesus did. So they had him killed. And that is going to be a very common theme. Where people making money, are in power, have influence, are using this to say something, and then you get guys cropping up occasionally, saying, not so sure about that. And then all of a sudden, that person gets killed. And this happens a lot. Okay, Codex Alexandrama, that one. You can kind of read it in my scratchy handwriting. That's also in the British Library. Another one of our early manuscripts. Then we jump 400-odd years and printing. So up until this point, people have been writing the Bible. I remember a, a youth weekend we did. Joint effort between Open Doors, who are responsible for smuggling the Bible into China, and Wycliffe, Bible translators, we had a youth weekend. So we made the young people try and write out the New Testament. And so every quiet moment, they're there scribbling it down. And it took them an entire weekend. And about like 30 kids managed to create the New Testament in handwriting. 30 kids, not just one bloke trying to write it all out. And by the way, can you imagine how many mistakes you'd get if you're copying from a text? So printing is invented in China. It doesn't have a massive impact until a little bit later. So now we have um, the Waldonesians, founded by a guy called Peter Valdez, or Waldo in Leon. And he read the Bible and took Jesus at his word. Stupid bloke. So he was quite wealthy, he was a bit of a tradesman. And um, he sold all of his possessions and gave it all to the poor. Surely that bit of the Bible's got to be metaphorical, right? Um, And he went preaching the truths that he read in the Bible, uh, condemning the idea of worshipping relics, uh, condemning the idea of holy water, uh, the pointlessness of pilgrimage. Where's that in the Bible? Um, Saying that, only prayer in church was valid prayer. He said, no, that's a load of nonsense. You know, Jesus prayed on the top of mountains. And, and he said that preachers of the gospel, people who were responsible for the gospel, uh, needed no temporal offices or dignities. They shouldn't take titles or pay. And he rejected what he saw in the Roman Catholic Church, the idolatries that he saw there. And um, a group of people sprung up around this teaching, the Waldenesians, And, of course, they were hunted mercilessly and wiped out by the church. In 1190, then, the Pope, I think he's called, yeah, fantastically called, Pope Innocent III. He declared that reading the Bible for common people should probably be outlawed because people get too excited when they read scripture. So only authorised people can read the scripture. In the 1200s, then, we get the Begwins movement. I know this is really radical. This is a bunch of women and, and they believed in this ecstatic, sort of mystical experience of the Christ. And these were commoners. They lived like nuns, but they didn't go into nunneries. Uh, they had, you know, monasteries and nunneries were, were popular at the time in the Catholic faith. And, and But they kind of took on the role like nuns, but they lived in their own houses. And they just went about their daily business looking after the poor and... Um, and they started uh, reading portions of the Bible in their own language. Now, this is going to become a really important thing. So, up from this point, it's state-sanctioned. It's in Latin. You can't read it in any of the language. The Latin version of the Bible is the divine version. You cannot translate it into common script. So, bear in mind that Christians are responsible for writing the Bible on common materials. Beautifully, the scholars translating the Bible, so early scholars translating it, they would, they would... They would ridicule Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul for their poor language. This is the language of commoners. This is too rough and vulgar to, trans- to transmit the word of God. And yet the Bible is a common book written on common materials in common words by common people. And yet by this point it's written in Latin. It's in giant tomes. No one else could read it but the special people. And so these, these Beguin women were reading portions of the scripture in their own language. And so, of course, they were declared heretics and killed. You know, it's in a common theme about how the Bible works here. Marguerite Porte in 1310, uh, Beguin, burned at the stake in Paris. She was the first one to die uh, of the Beguins. Now, this comes on. To some of my favourite people now. John Wycliffe. He was a Doctor of Divinity. These aren't just uh, random uh, crazies within society. He was the Doctor of Divinity at Oxford. So yes, we started to have theological schools springing up. John Wycliffe. And he started reading the Bible. Uh, And he had the audacity to say, what's written in the Bible should be higher and more important to us than the rulings and tradition of the papacy, and that will come back again. And he started teaching, and he got kicked out of being a professor at Oxford. But his, his, his uh, followers sprung up the Wyclifites, or they, as they derogatively got called, the Lollards. Now remember that word, Lollards, because that's going to be important to this city. The lolads. These are followers of Wycliffe who believed in the scriptures, not the Pope. He died in 1384, but his followers, there was a a spring up around him, the Wycliffeites. And in 1407, um, he started, sorry, before he died, he was translating the Bible into common English. And in 1407, that was declared heretical, the Bible in English. (laughs) And they were burned, the Bibles. Burning things that resist power seem to be, become, become a common theme. Uh, in 1454, the first printed book by a guy called John Gooseflesh, or he's got a German name really, Johannes Gleischfleisch or something, but he invented the printed book. And what was the first book that he decided to print? It took two years to print one copy, but it was the Bible. So the book owes a lot to Christianity and the Bible especially. 1506, Erasmus, another great scholar, he begins a new Latin translation. The word ecclesia, he translates as congregation, not church. And there's a word in there where John the Baptist says, come and do penance, is what the traditional version say, but he translated it as repent. Now, wait a minute. If you take out the word church, for Ecclesia, then there is no mention of the church in the Bible. And if you take away the word do penance, then there is no reference point for penance, which the Catholic Church has been making money off. That's a little bit awkward. If you're trying to build authority, you have to come to church because that's the only authorized place you can come to either hear the Bible or meet with God or pray and you remove the word church, that gets a bit awkward. And if you're telling everybody, well, you have to come and do penance, and then all of a sudden the word penance disappears out of the Bible, that makes it a little bit awkward for the powers that be. So um, they decided that that wasn't good. Another uh, word that caused a lot of trouble was the word love. If I have not love, but originally it was translated as charity. And the church took it upon itself to enforce charity. As in, you have to give money. But if you translate that as love and remove the word charity and all of the nuances that charity has, then you've got another sword, another axe to the root of the money-making tree of the church. So it gets a bit awkward. You can see how translation, just translating, is subversive. We're, We're getting there. So 1511. This is the beginning of the persecution of the Lollards in Coventry. We have a memorial just down the road between the police station and the railway station. The Martyr's Memorial. Eleven Lollards were burned at the stake over a period of 50 years in Coventry. What for? For following Wycliffe, believing the Bible. One lady, I can't remember her name, but she she was tried and then let off. But they searched her and they found sewn into the hem of her garments. Lord's Prayer in English, which she was teaching her children the Ten Commandments in English and the Apostles' Creed and so they decided to burn her at the stake as well in this city the Lollards and then comes along Martin Luther with his 95 theses Sola Fide which ironically that, that means faith alone by faith alone we are saved and we all believe that, right? it's not it's not by our works or anything Sola but the funny thing is in Romans 3.28 he actually inserted the words th- alone so it says in Romans 3.28 by faith we are saved but he said by faith alone because that's so ironic isn't it That the distortions of scripture he was fighting against he distorted the scripture but he's great um, one of the fa- fantastic things that he did he translated, he, he translated the Bible into colloquial German, commoners German. And he was brilliant at this. He, 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 he had a room, he disappeared off the face of the map when he started to do this work. But he lived near a marketplace and he'd just go and stand in the market and listen to how commoners spoke. And that's how he translated the Bible, into commoners language. And he was brilliant, obviously he challenged the Catholic Church. Um, and in 1522 he finished his translation... And this was a work of genius. He brought the word back to the people. And he kicked out all sorts of things all over Europe because it was challenge to, to the Roman papacy. Roman, Roman Catholic papacy. In 1525, inspired by what they'd read in the Bible, peasants began reading the Bible and questioning power for themselves. And then we have the Great uh, Peasants' War, in which 100,000 peasants were slaughtered. On the basis of uprising against... Why, why is there this class system? Because of the Bible. Now, William Tyndale. This guy is a genius. So he started... Again, he was another scholar. And he started translating the New Testament. And he got exiled. So he ran away to Europe to carry on his translation. And he started getting translations back into England. Being smuggled in. So Bible's being smuggled into this country. In barrels of hay, through tradesmen and everything and the funny thing was the church found out about it so they managed to buy up at a grossly inflated price all of these bibles and they had a mass book burning and there's so many ironies about what went on but they burnt the books but it made people uncomfortable because wait a minute they're still burning the word of god right so all of a sudden the seeds of doubt are placed in the mass populace but because the price that the church paid for all these Bibles, it funded Tyndale to do a better new revised version with more copies. How br- I just, it's just genius. <clears throat> uh, in 1527, um, Anabaptism begins based on what they read in the Bible. These are pacifists, non-violence. This is where we get church traditions such as the Amish and the Mennonites today. Uh, non-violence. That's when they begin. And they are subjected to a mass persecution. Anabaptist means that um, baptised again. So basically everybody in Christian Europe was baptised when they were a child. But they said, no, people have to be baptised when they can make a definitive decision. So you have to be baptised again. And the church didn't like this and loads of them got killed and all sorts of um, persecutions and everything. So Tyndale. And then we're back to 1530. Thomas Hitton found in possession of uh, Bibles burned at stake. Richard Bayfield, also found with Tyndale Bibles, burned at the stake. John Bainfield, found with Tyndale Bibles, burned at the stake. <coughs> and then another irony that the English crown decides that we need an English Bible. So what do they do? They translate it using Tyndale's Bible translation. So the first state version of the Bible. <coughs> Eventually Tyndale is caught. As he flees across Europe, he's strangled in prison because he's so popular, rather than being burnt at the stake alive. They do burn him at the stake, but he's already dead. Nice little touch there, I guess. And then 1539, the Great Bible. And it was a great Bible. A very large thing that they'd keep chained in a church. Very heavy, very not popular to carry around with you, it was supposed to be locked down in one place under supervision. This Bible is dangerous, and we can only have you reading it supervised. Mary, Mary, bloody Mary, comes along, and she outlawed the reading of the Bible by the public. She also burnt and killed a lot of Protestants in the country because she was Catholic, famously, um, and she had a reign of terror chasing after protestant believers but she banned the reading of the bible it could only be read in latin by authorized people like your priests the geneva bible comes out which is a fantastic work of scholarship i can't um, i've seen pages of it and basically it's got like bible notes and maps and concordances and and uh, like um, references and everything this genius, absolutely brilliant and basically the idea was to bring it back to the people to enable the commoner to read it for themselves and understand it So, you see this war between authorities removing people's ability and then people trying to get the ability back to the people. Okay, King James version of the Bible is produced, removing the word tyrant. Authorized version again. And and it's in all this flower. I mean, if you've got a King James, just read it. It's in this flowery, verbose, kind of high English that never even existed at that time. And again, it's removing it out of the common language up to this exalted, sort of elite place. Sunday schools began by a guy called Robert Reichy who said there's a poverty trap in England because the poor can't get jobs because they're not educated, but they can't get educated because they're poor. So he started the first Sunday school. Schools met on Sundays because the kids had to work Monday through Saturday. So he started Sunday schools. And what was their basis of education? Reading the Bible. Within 50 years, a quarter of the, the, England's population was being educated in the Sunday schools using the Bible. That's where the word Sunday school comes from. It was a school on Sunday. 1804, people started realising that, wait a minute, everybody needs a copy of the Bible in their own language. Up until this point, they'd had efforts at translating bits of the New Testament into Native American languages in the States, because obviously we'd been there and done all of those things. And so they decide they need, they need Bibles all over the world. So the British and Foreign Bible Society started with funding to translate the Bible into all these languages. And now there's the 2020 vision to see the Bible translated into every language on the planet by the year 2020. This is being pioneered by the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Go Google it. It's a fascinating project. Just for you, Robert Germain Thomas. A Welsh missionary to China who had a heart for the Korean peninsula. He kept trying to go to Korea to spread the gospel. Catholic priests had been there from the 1700s, but they'd largely been massacred by the Korean government. Not the same Korean government that we have now. Communism wasn't around then. But Jermaine Thomas had a real heart to get to um, Korea. And so he managed to find his way onto an American armoured trade boat they was illegally going to try and penetrate Korea to establish trade ties between Korea and America. Very American to have it, armoured. We come in peace to trade, but we have guns. <laughs> he gets a job on this as a translator because he knows the Korean language as well as the Chinese language. They come down the river towards Pyongyang uh, and the Koreans are a little bit ticked off because this is unauthorised. This has not been sanctioned. So there's some very belligerent exchanges between the boat and the people. The people on the boat decide to kidnap one of the local authority figures to try and force a peaceful <laughs> trade negotiation. And eventually the Koreans, the local Koreans get really ticked off by this, all this belligerence from the Americans, funny that. And they send a fireboat. they set fire to a boat and send it towards the trade boat. The boat runs aground, the American trade boat runs aground on a sandbar. And the boat is on fire because the Koreans get the boat with their fireboat, And so some American soldiers choose to die on the boat. Some jump out and are shot by the local Koreans. Robert Jermaine Thomas and one American make it to the shore and they are beaten to death with clubs. After his body hits the ground and the, and the, and the, um, the myth goes that he dyingly presented his Bible to his killer... His Bibles wash up on the shore, and they're in Chinese, so not in Korean. And so the locals decide, what we'll do with these, this paper is we'll wallpaper our houses. So they wallpaper, out, and years later, Christians would visit the village to read the Bible in Chinese. And that's partly where you get the underground church in North Korea from. From a guy that didn't even realise he managed to share the gospel in North Korea. He was clubbed to death before he could even say a word. And yet somehow, somehow... Rubbish. This is brilliant. Um, 1895. Some archaeologists, thinking Diana Jones. They decide that everybody's chosen all the cool sites in Egypt, so we're going to go to the ancient rubbish dump outside of a city. And they start excavating this ancient rubbish dump. And what you've got to realise is that the, the texts that get preserved from history are the, is the literature. It's the great works. It's the treaties by great people. So these guys are excavating in the rubbish dump and they find all sorts of texts of people's shopping lists, their bills, their transactions. And the funny thing is, is when people have been translating the New Testament from its original Greek, there was 150 words that they didn't know what they were. So things like bread. When Jesus is breaking the bread and saying, this is my body broken for you, Of course, because Jesus said it, and it's a symbolic moment, they said, it. well, it's spiritual bread, it's heavenly bread, it's this manna from heaven. Uh, Because they didn't know what the the word was. And then they find on on a lady shopping list the word bread. And it literally means bread. Mm -hmm. The common bread. Sorry, Steve, I'm almost there. We said about suffragettes, Emily Davison famously trampled to death on the race course trying to pin a suffragette. Banner on the king's horse The night before she did that She'd been reading the Bible She had written a treatise that never got published About the injustices Because there is neither male nor female In Christ Again we're coming back to that verse in Galatians She was inspired by what she read in the Bible And that's where we get the suffragette movement That's where we get Women can vote Inspired by the Bible Gandhi, not even a Christian his non-violent protest against the British imperial rule of India was inspired by what he saw of Jesus Christ. Famously, he never became a Christian because of the Christians he actually met. But he took his cue from Jesus. 1929, communists rise to power and they ban the Bible. Nazism rises to power in Germany in 1934 and they ban the Bible on the pretext that people were smuggling in um, subversive literature against Nazism, in it, Nazism taking its cue from Marcion, which was a heretic in the early church who said he was anti-Semitic and he got rid of the Old Testament, saying that the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament, and also you know let's get rid of little bits and pieces. The Nazis had a Bible which cut out all the Semitic texts, including all of the writings of Paul. Bizarrely enough. World War II then this is a great story I didn't even realise who this guy was but I'd been reading about him Pastor Andre Trocme in a a French village in in occupied France and Jews start fleeing Nazi Germany and they start knocking on his door as the local pastor and at first he's like I don't know what to do with you people you know we'll get in trouble if we hide and then he starts hiding them and hiding them and hiding them and hiding them them in local farms and, and towns and and, and the, the local uh, French police who were uh, collaborating with the Nazis were knocking on his door. And they said, Are there any Jews in this village? We know there are Jews in this village. And he says, I know no Jews, I only know humans. Mm-hmm. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. By the end of the war, they found that he'd hidden 5,000 Jews in a village. 5,000 Jews. I know no Jews, I know only humans. Brilliant. 1957, Martin Luther King, man alive. You've just got to read some of that dude's speeches. Oh my God. So we talked about slavery and oppression, Why oppression. And his language, if you've ever even heard one of his speeches, so rich with the language of Exodus. I have been to the top of the mountain. Beautiful language. 1981, one of my, my favourites. I've actually been to this beach in China. 1981, open doors. On the instigation of Brother Andrew, who was absolutely mental, overnight, they smuggled one million Bibles into communist China. One million Bibles. This is proper James Bond stuff, right? What they did is they got a tanker, a boat, and they sailed it to a peninsula in China, but the boat was specially designed to sink... And the Bibles were wrapped in packs that were kind of bubble wrap, so they'd float. So what they did is they sailed the boat towards the peninsula. They sunk the deck of the boat so that the Bibles could be floated off and taken by powered dinghies to the shore. They'd organised with the house church network to be at this beach at this specific time. And they towed these things in. I've met guys that were actually involved in this. And they come to the beach and the house church, they arrive silently in the dark and they start taking away Bibles. And after a couple of hours, I think something like 600,000 got delivered. And then all of a sudden the Chinese uh, secret police kind of came and disrupted the beach. It's just genius. And, and so these people are running away with their Bibles and hiding them. And, and the local villages, the Chinese uh, police are finding them. And there's a famous case where they arrived in one village and they found all the Bibles and they threw it in the, the, the village latrine, in the toilet, in the cesspit. And then under the cover of darkness the next night, people, villagers, climbed into the cesspit and rescued the Bibles. And they cleaned them, lovingly cleaned these texts. And they sprayed them with perfume and they still exist. The perfume Bibles. People still have copies of these most prized possessions. The perfume Bibles. And then uh, there's all there's so many cool stories about uh, per, uh, the Bible in persecute countries. Me, I became a Christian. Uh, I got given a um, Gideon New Testament when I was at school. Don't know if they still do that in assemblies. I got given one. Um, And then about four years after getting given it, I decided to read it brilliantly. The reason why I started reading it was because I'd been reading The Omen. You know the book about the Antichrist, Damien? And it had quotes from the New Testament in it, so I wanted to see if he was quoting it right. (laughs) The nerd that I am. (laughs) So I read the New Testament, and I was with my friend um, David Jenkins. I used to walk to school with him, and I knew he was a Christian, so every day I'd be reading the Bible at night, and then I'd ask him questions all the way to school and all the way back, and then occasionally when I went, to their house, you know, on a Saturday or whatever, I'd, I'd just buzz in with questions from the New Testament. And a period of about six months I became a Christian after being convinced by the New Testament. And so you see, the history of the Bible isn't the history of power, of authority, of domination. Power, authority, and domination have tried, but somehow the text of the Bible always pushes back. And I would suggest the reason is this, is that because the text of the Bible points us to Christ, who always pushes back against authority and power. And Jesus Christ is God. In the Old Testament, we see who always pushes back against the misappropriation of power, of coercive violence. And so I encourage you, this is a dangerous and subversive book. If you read it and don't feel challenged or feel the urge to be dangerous and subversive, then I'd suggest you need to read it slower and read it again. Done.